0: If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, March the 1st, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States, I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today here in the Hoover Institution's basement, deep in the heart of Stanford University, is Michael Oslin. He is Hoover's inaugural Williams Griffiths Fellow in Contemporary Asia, specializing in global risk analysis, US security, and foreign policy strategy, and security and political relations. He is our man in Asia. And I apologize in advance for the weather here. Uh, you managed to come out to Stanford at a bad time of the year when the weather is mercurial. Today has been a dark and stormy day, but still better than Washington most days. It's certainly better than Chicago where you also make a home.
1: Well, Bill, thanks for having me back. It's actually uh, the mercurial weather is just like Washington. I feel very at home. Yes.
0: So the timing here today for this conversation is good. I want to talk about Korea, but first let's talk about the giant on the in Asia, and that is China, which is in the news today thanks to a surprise that Donald Trump dumped a few hours ago. He said he will sign an order next week to impose 25% tariffs on steel imports and 10% duties on aluminum, uh, using his authority under an obscure trade law provision that permits the president to take sweeping measures in the name of American uh, national security. If you followed Trump during the campaign, Michael, he said he would do something less like this. If you followed him as president, he didn't talk a lot about this, and in Trumpian fashion, he dropped it out of nowhere today, throwing everybody off, including a lot of people's stocks. The market took a hit what say you to the idea of tariffs? And let's talk about in particular its
1: effect on China. Is this the beginning of a trade war with China? Well, that's all gonna depend on what China does, Bill. And I think that uh, before we you know, sort of talk about what it means, I think we have to look back into uh, the politics of how he's approaching China. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as president, he ran, used China often as a, um, a you know, beat it with the, the stick of trade. Right. And yet, for any president the trade is a global issue right it's not that it's just China or back in the 1990s it was it was just Japan but uh, at times particular countries become the the sort of focus of of all the attention as Japan mm-hmm. did not that there wasn't unfair trading by other countries in right. the 1990s and I think that's uh, a little bit where we are uh, with China Trump was talking about writing uh, all the wrongs of the past in, in trade be it trade pacts such as getting out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or, or taking unilateral action on on things that were uh, essentially bilateral trade issues. But it was also linked to a much larger political sense on his part that trade can be used as a tool to influence other types of policies of these countries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in the 1990s, we didn't do that with Japan. Right. Clinton administration slap down Japan uh, with all sorts of uh, trade well threats of trade tariffs and then getting into uh, the the trade negotiations and that's all that's its only interest. Trump, whether it was because of his own innate understanding of uh, what he wanted to get done uh, in the world or particularly in Asia or because he was advised as such uh, by individuals uh, inside the White House, immediately began linking trade with security and politics now mm-hmm. that, is Something presidents hadn 't done, uh, particularly vis a vis China in fact we had a we had really two China policies, not two China policies, as in Taiwan China, China. No, what we had was there was the China policy of trade which w- which since the 1990s and Bill Clinton has been nothing but trying to integrate China into the global system, mm-hmm. look the other way at any type of uh, any type of um, uh, flagrant violation of norms and rules, uh, and take whatever hits we have at home for this glorious goal of, of getting a, uh, a benefit at the end of the day. That was one China policy. The other China policy was security and politics. They'd never been brought together. Trump brought them together. Mm-hmm. The reason he didn't act on this for a year was because he was trying to get China to play nice on other things, uh, primarily North Korea, uh, but also South China Sea, and to back down in some of its more extreme claims. And you saw this rhetoric swinging back and forth from the president. Right which was to say well uh, i'm going to punish them or no i'm going to punish them if they don't act well or no they're helping us out so why would i put tariffs on them he actually said that about north korea and then finally saying well you know they they tried but it didn't work so now we're going back to plan a mm-hmm. well today was plan a okay so there is a consistency uh i think that he will get a lot of criticism for it, uh, rightfully so from the economic side, but criticism from the politics of it without people uh, maybe fully recognizing that in his mind all of these pieces were linked together. Uh, He believes he gave it a try to use trade as a tool, get China to act better. That didn't work. So today you see uh, the hammer dropping on steel.
0: I'd like you to explain this to me in two ways. Number one, is this the right idea in terms of dealing with China? And number two, if you do think this is the right idea... Is this the right time to be doing
1: this? So here's I think the 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 problem that Trump faces, and I think where uh, he has to be given a little bit of slack um, just as he does with North Korea. He inherited a failed North Korean policy uh, from multiple presidents. So whatever he does, he starts not only from behind the eight ball, but not even on the not even on the pool table, right? right? Uh, so if he if he messes it up more, it's not like it was great before he got in there. Mm-hmm. okay. I think with China to some degree, you have the same situation. I think there is a growing, there has been a growing recognition, not in all quarters, but in a lot of quarters. Uh, Number one, that obviously China's been um, unfairly uh, dumping products. It has obviously not lived up to any of its promises for uh, intellectual property rights protection. It doesn't Mm -hmm. do intellectual property in the way that we think of it. Um, It it continues to cyber espionage through hacking to, to steal corporate secrets and the like. We as a country and as a political system and presidents from both parties have been letting this happen for decades now, mm-hmm. again. So it's not that we had perfect trade relations with China and now Trump has ruined it into a trade war because he dropped the hammer on steel. Rather, from his particular perspective, but also I would say from a, a, a more widely shared perspective, trade with China had gotten out of whack Uh the the latest trade figures are, are you know, a $300 billion um, trade imbalance. I don't remember the exact number. I was looking at it last week and mm-hmm. can't remember the exact number, but it's something like that. Clearly, that is an unnatural trade. No one expects it to be equal or let right. alone the U.S. to have a surplus, but it is purely out of whack. So you've got to do something about it. So to do something about it, though, means that you have let the situation deteriorate so much that anything you do becomes what it became today the dow drops 400 points people are yelling about a trade war simply because he took the first step the problem is and i'm sorry it's a long winded response to your um, question the problem is that actions like this at a likely lesser scale Mm -hmm. should have been taken a long time ago Mm -hmm. same thing we should have done things against north korea a long time ago so now if you do anything you're so far down the mountain trying to climb back up that it seems that it takes a Herculean effort. Herculean. Herculean. That's it, Herculean effort. Uh, And also it seems that you are now throwing all caution to the winds and risking either actual kinetic war or a trade war. So the answer is it depends on what China does and the degree to which they feel they have confidence that they could weather a trade war and that it would not hurt them more than it would hurt us.
0: So let's put this in terms of a sport popular in Asia which would be badminton. So if the President
1: signs this order
0: and takes a yeah. strike at China, going after aluminum, and this is a shuttlecock which is being being shot across the Pacific on the other side of the rim to China. So what is China's response? Where do you look to China? Do you look to the government? Do you look to certain manufacturers? How do they how do they fire back? How do how do they swing back?
1: So they've they've already done a little bit of that and I was trying to check up on it to make to make mm-hmm. sure because just the announcement uh, of a few weeks ago that Trump was looking into doing some of this caused them to already say, well, we're going to bring some cases and, against you at the WTO. And the timing, by
0: the way, is very delicious because there was a Chinese trade delegation, I think, visiting Washington at the, pretty much the same time. Sort of like December 1941 in terms of a lot of overlapping instances. But.
1: Yeah. Well, in that case, though, the Japanese sent the delegation and the attack at the same time. So uh, in this case, you're right. And what they did is they sent Uh, basically their top trade guy, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, yeah, this is a great, if we could do this as a sidebar just for a second, um, whether or not you're a fan of the president, you have to recognize that he uh, appears to be an innate master of political timing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, his modus operandi appears to be keeping everyone off balance. Right. Uh, Now, whether that's good policy, whether it's you know constructive policy is a different set of issues um uh you know bottom line up front i don't think this is a good thing to do but mm-hmm. the fact that the chinese sent a delegation sent their top guy who is the direct emissary of president xi jinping of china and trump drops this right. is you know that's a signal I- itself and the signal i think all of these even taking aside what this will actually do to uh, even out trade and and, and the like All of these are signals to China that we're not afraid of you and we're not going to accommodate, which is really, quite frankly, the signals that we've been sending for years and years. They're not used to this. I don't
0: understand the Asian mindset you obviously do. Is that sort of an added, it's like an extra mustard on the fastball when you do it when the trade delegate is visiting?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, for those who believe in um, uh, the sort of rules Mm -hmm. of uh, international behavior or right. open architecture of trade or whatever you want to call it this will be seen as exactly as you put it at pearl harbor how dare you do this when the well, chinese are here talking put another way there's you can slap
0: somebody across the face with the glove or you can kick them a few feet lower if you so choose now did, did trump achieve the latter and not the former uh
1: i think it's closer i mean this closer. is a significant move so this is closer to actually you know having a material impact it's going to have an impact obviously on american consumers it's right. going to raise prices here People are are rightfully concerned about that. Um, it, it seems like a dramatic move, uh, but, but you know, it is, it is clearly an insult. But, again, you know, those who feel that we've been too accommodating of China would say, well, what do you expect? We talk with them at every level from presidential on down, and we've been doing it for years, and we have these high-level delegations. We right. have the 2 plus 2. We have the strategic and economic dialogue, all of these things. And you know what? Nothing gets better. In fact, it only gets worse. Right. Uh, that splash of realism, so to speak, mm-hmm. is something that I don't think in itself is offensive. But we should have been doing it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And so for Trump to do anything right now, it seems like it is not just the slap with the glove, but right. the kick down the mountainside. Right. Um, but this is pretty significant. Now, the question is, uh, how did the Chinese react? I, I think that uh, first of all, any, uh, anyone who answers this question is guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the Chinese have a, a fairly well-established um, pattern. Uh, on the one hand, they're getting more comfortable using international institutions and organizations like WTO, and they could easily bring a WTO case against the U.S., and they've, mm-hmm. they've intimated that they may do that. Um, the other one, of course, is enormous bluster, and to talk about how this is a trade war and this is, you know, disastrous, um, but then to back down. Uh, because China still, uh, the leadership, the party, still very concerned about its about power, right. uh, ab- about uh, what this could do to the Chinese economy, how this will be seen. Um, don't forget they've gotten enormous mileage mm-hmm. over the past decades from basically be s- being seen as having run the tables against the Americans, right. just like the North Koreans. It's a different scale, uh, but but the Chinese, you know, when they basically get the Americans to agree to almost everything that they propose. Sends a message, you know, inside China of how powerful we are. We are a right. great power. The century of shame's over. You know, the Americans are are paper tigers. Okay. And now Trump's not doing that. He's not playing according to that script. I'm not sure he has a script, right. But he's not playing according to their script. Mm-hmm. So their reaction, I think, is a combination as it was right when he took office, and he took the call, or even before office, he took the call from the Taiwanese Prime Minister, uh, Pr- President-elect. He mm-hmm. talked about. Um, uh, we're going to take these islands away from the South China Sea. The fact is... People flipped out when he did it. <laughs> and the Chinese were put, rocked on the back foot. Right. I mean, it really stunned them, and they they, they got real quiet to mm-hmm. sort of watch and see what's happening. Now, here he's taken an action. Right. In, in trade terms, it's a kinetic action, right? Right. They will probably um, use legal mechanisms. That mm-hmm. would be natural. But they also could take um, a unique high road, which is to say, you know what? Trump's trying to plunge the world into a trade war. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go for it. Uh, Xi Jinping, you know, is is the champion of Davos now, not Donald Trump. <laughs> Even though he didn't go this year, his last year's speech. So they could say, you know what? We're going to take the high road. Right. We're going to we're going to save the world because this madman is trying to plunge the world into a next great depression. But really, what that is, Bill, is a fig leaf for saying. We're a little nervous, we're a little scared, and we don't quite know what to do, so let's just wait and, and see what this right. develops into, which is actually, you know, quite frankly, a smart policy.
0: So you mentioned, you alluded to uh, something which I think people don't understand enough, which is that oftentimes when Donald Trump does something out of the blue and there's a huge reaction to it, he is managing to change the conversation. He's shifting attention away from something else. And one thing which he is shifting us away from for the moment, Michael, is North Korea. We just came off of a couple weeks of a lot of tension on the Korean Peninsula, a lot of tension to, to the Korean Peninsula. And that was the Winter Games in Pyeongchang. This was, on the one hand, a very significant moment for that country, because this is why this was the first cold-weather Olympics played in Asia, outside of Japan. Uh, it was a vast moment of pride, I imagine, for South Korea. They bid for it in July 2011. They beat out France and Germany, cities and those towns competing for it. The bid was offered under the slogan Michael of New Horizons. And I'm going to read to you a quote from a North Korean spokesman who may or may not have a job after the games, but here is what uh, that spokesman said. It was in People Magazine, of all things, at vast font of foreign policy, People Magazine. The spokesman said, and I'm quoting, it's a gesture for peace and security in the region. He was speaking about the Korean teams marching into the stadium under the uniform and Korean flag. Quote, it's a gesture for peace and security in the region. The games are a good step for the national reconciliation of all Koreans and also regarded as a national festival. Michael, had the Olympic Games started us on the path toward a unified Korea?
1: If only. If If only only we could believe it. Uh, If only the world worked that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a brilliant propaganda move by the North Koreans to join, uh, to march together with the South Koreans, to hint at all of these fig leaves, uh, not fig leaves, but um, olive branches, sorry, Mm -hmm. which were actually fig leaves. I mean, they were covering up what North Korea is really doing, but they were... Proffered as uh, um, olive branches. Um, Well, this has happened before, though. I mean, the North Koreans look. uh, Madeleine Albright, as Secretary of State, right? You know, clinked glasses. You know, a toast with uh, Kim, uh, Kim Jong Il, Mm -hmm. um, and the world talked about peace and a new horizon and a new dawn. Uh, There was the Sunshine Policy that the North uh, encouraged from South Korea, and the world talked about peace and a new dawn. And meanwhile, the North Koreans were continuing to build nuclear weapons, uh, or, or try to at that right. point in time. Uh, they continued to take uh, aggressive actions, such as bombing South Korean territory, sinking South Korean ships. So if, if it turns out that Pyeongchang really was the turning point, then right. it will be written about for, it, it will be the equivalent. Of the American ping pong team going to China in <laughs> 1972, right? It, this w- this right. is an enormously important moment. Mm-hmm. I'd pretty much be willing to bet almost any amount that it will not turn out to be that way.
0: There was competition on the slopes, Michael. There
1: was competition on the ice rink,
0: and there was also a media-created competition in the stands. And two of the participants were Ivanka Trump and a woman named Kim Yo Jong. Who is Kim Yo Jong,
1: Michael? So Kim Yo Jong is a uh, Kim. Jong Un, the dictator's sister, mm-hmm. um, she has become uh, one of his apparently his top confidants, which means that you know Kim Jong Un might be following the Donald Trump model of you know family <laughs> relations, uh, because he's he actually you know he murdered one of his half brothers, right? Um, the other one's somewhere we don't know where, and then, what, then was that the one sister. murdered in
0: the uh, in the airport
1: in Malaysia? Yeah, in the airport with VX nerve gas, mm-hmm. um, a guy who uh, was so utterly inoffensive and not a threat to Kim Jong-un that right. the idea of murdering him is just boggles the mind. This was a guy who tried to sneak into Disneyland. Uh, you know, he was like the last thing from a threat. Right. But his sister has become, a, a, as far as we can tell, a member of the inner circle. I mean, the important part, I think, about uh, focusing on her is that any information we get about this inner circle yes. is good because we know so little about how North Korea operates. So that was my first reaction. You would read
0: stories about her at the games and while they would focus on her appearance, and obviously she was just so more telegenic than her chubby brother with the bad haircut, uh, they would use phrases like increasingly prominent. And, Michael, how do you know she's increasingly prominent? besides the fact that she's obviously the first member of the family to be in South Korea since I think about 1953 otherwise what evidence do we have that she actually wields power do we have none. none uh we have pictures do, i mean this is do,
1: kremlinology how do we
0: get intelligence on north korea how do oh, we how do we talk to other countries and just try to make up a profile or
1: we do uh, I, I think that uh, look all intelligence it's all a you know a, a hall of mirrors and uh, often you see what you want to see and you certainly see what they want you to see mm-hmm um we we rely uh, we you know for us we're very good at technical means of gathering intelligence mm-hmm. you know what what people call sigint right. um S- signals intelligence right or um uh aerial intelligence right photo intelligence we're, we're very good at that Human, human intelligence we're we're not as good at certainly not in North Korea um we rely a lot on the south Koreans who mm-hmm. have better contacts overall uh, I think we rely some on the Japanese. Um, it would be interesting to find out how much, if anything, we actually get from the Chinese, who mm-hmm. have their own sources. Um, but can't trust any of it. So what we've worked on is that there's some pictures of her. Mm-hmm. And clearly she was allowed to go.
0: Supposedly with child, apparently.
1: she Apparently she's pregnant.
0: Uh,
1: you know, I actually had not paid attention to that. I don't um, know if
0: somebody would know that, but it got out in the press that she's with child, so...
1: Well, you know, um, this may be uh, her, her scouting out the place she's going to flee to for, for, um, for exile or, or, or sanctuary. But, right. um, you know, it could be a complete uh, ruse on Kim Jong-un's part to, right. to make us all think that she's really important, and she's not.
0: So here's what's interesting, Michael. They send the very telegenic, attractive sister to the beginning of the games, and who attends the closing ceremonies? It's Kim Jong-chol. Who is Kim Jong-chol? Uh, the president. Yes. Yeah, but, the old guy. But he has a rather sketchy background, does he not? He's done a few bad things in the past.
1: Well, they uh, all have.
0: He has, but he—he's uh, intel- an intelligence chief. Yeah. Right. So, which I guess is the equivalent yeah. of their CIA. That is, say. Uh, I thought you meant something specific other than. Well, I am after something specific. Survived in this in uh, regime. he—he he allegedly is the mastermind of the attacks in South Korea. On several attacks in South Korea, including the one in 2010, sunk the ship, killed I think 46 yeah. South Korean sailors. Yes. This guy had blood on his hands.
1: Well, I, the truth is, anybody in that regime has blood on their hands.
0: Right, so but this is somebody, though. You unlike the sister who we're smitten with; the press couldn't get enough of her. Yeah, it's almost like having a panda bear come to your country. This is a this is a rough character, and there he is representing the regime.
1: Well, look, it is it is a um, a testament right. uh, both to the uh, ruthlessness of the regime to send someone into South Korea who is responsible for right. South Korean blood. But also to the uh, the willingness of the South Koreans mm-hmm. uh, to say, well, we'll do anything for peace. Uh, right. And the assumption that this is actually going to turn into peace. You're right. right. Most countries probably would have taken him right then and there. Right. I mean, you know, that would have sparked a war. But nonetheless, you know, it is it is a brazenness uh, right. on the part of, of the North that we've that we've come to expect, um, and and there was uh, and you saw the pictures, you know the the contrast between the young sister and this old general. But again, any senior uh, official in uh, the North Korean regime has survived right. because they are ruthless, brutal, and bloody, and quite honestly have carried out bloody acts in the name right. of the regime, whether domestically or abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no one you could have sent right. that would have you know been a uh, a real harbinger of right. of peace and that and it's an interesting point right because uh you know even in the soviet union right you know you could send gromyko to the united states Andre gromyko and we know he wasn't an executioner he was not a kgb guy he was right. a you know, foreign ministry stooge a high level the highest level stooge But you could send gromyko mm-hmm. um with china you're 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 pretty much able to do the same thing but not north korea mm-hmm. um, the this is a there is no real Equivalent civilian track certainly of any type of of um, uh, prominence or or, or um, independence within this system. These are military men. There are intelligence men. Uh, they are brutal. They are, they have starved and killed untold numbers of their right. people. So any single one you want to deal with
0: mm-hmm.
1: has It's is covered in blood.
0: And President Trump is poking them yet again. He has announced more sanctions, which include, I believe, what maritime sanctions have you policing. Maritime waters around North Korea, keeping an eye on traffic around the country, so he's trying to tighten the grip on on North Korea.
1: Well, I'm always amazed, Bill, that there's that there's more sanctions we can. There's levy. something new to do. Yeah, right. you you would think you would think that we would have done it by now. I right. mean, that's part of the world's unseriousness about North Korea until mm-hmm. now. Right. You know, now that now that the world really feels it's threatened, then y- you see more action. But. You would have thought, my God, why, why is there anybody left to sanction? Why is there any business left to sanction? But you're right. And this is an important thing. This, you know, this is in part drawing off of a, uh, a policy that the George W. Bush administration mm-hmm. initiated called the Proliferation Security Initiative, right. uh, which was to prevent any proliferation of weapons of mass destruction or materials the way that the North Koreans helped the Syrians build uh, a nuclear power plant until the Israelis took it out. Um, and that's exactly what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should be shutting them off from the world. And the problem, as we learned back in the 2000s, is that China provides air and land bridges, which we right. cannot stop. Right. Uh, and we cannot right. shut down. But but the seaborne route is more effective, mm-hmm. uh, and we should be doing that. And, and these are the things we should be aiming at, as well as the wealth directly of the, uh, of the regime. That's what right. seems to get them to the table. Now, as with...
0: China, Michael. There's a question with Korea of what comes next, and I'm going to read you the worst-case scenario, and this is a chance for you to drink some water and catch your breath. It's a long passage, but to the question of how does North Korea react and where do we go from here given sanctions and ongoing testaments, I'm going to read you a passage from a fellow you know named Harry Kazianis. Harry is the Director of Defense Studies at the Center for National Interest, and he wrote a column for Fox News recently in which he wrote the following. Here we go. When the Olympic flame fades from Pyeongchang, we should brace ourselves for what could be the most tension-filled few months internationally we have seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis. The challenge for the Trump administration is to navigate what will be a tense spring that could very well see the resumption of a conflict on the Korean peninsula that never truly ended and has the potential to claim millions of lives. Through a mix of ingenuity and creativity and avoiding the siren song of war, America and its allies can contain and deter North Korea. It won't be easy or cost-free, but it is the best option we have to secure our homeland and our interests.
1: Wow. Yeah, I think uh, what Harry has written, others have written, I've written it as well. I, I have been largely of the school that we can still contain North Korea. Well, he's saying that we're going to have a war. Well, unless unless we yeah. do something in between, yeah, I think the number one uh, goal, obviously, of this regime is to survive, mm-hmm. right? They will not choose war at least uh, knowingly. Meaning, they may blunder into it. They may cause a crisis or an accident that results in a war. Uh, but you notice, since t- since two thousand and ten, they have not undertaken another attack like the. Chonan sinking of the ship, because they knew that would cause a war, the right. South Koreans made it very clear. And so they haven't done anything like that. And they haven't bombed South Korean territory, the South Koreans made clear that would cause a war. Um, they also, I think, believe that Trump would wage a war, unlike the Obama administration, although they find it hard, as far as we can tell, to really believe that any American president would go to war over Korea. Right. Uh, so the, the North Koreans are not going to precipitate a war. Um, again, they may blunder into it. Uh, what they want is to survive. Now, th- the bottom line of all of this, of a nuclear-capable, ICBM-capable North Korea, is that we simply don't know mm-hmm. how that changes Kim Jong-un's calculations. Right. From one perspective, you could say, you know what, it might actually stabilize the situation. Why Because by having the ultimate deterrent, they may actually gain a sense of security. And that's what China's nuclear deterrent, for the most part, still is, but always traditionally was, which is we're not going to use it, but if you attack us, we'll unleash this. And so it gains a measure of security. So there is a weird way in which you could say that this might uh, lead to a a more quiescent North Korea simply because they don't feel that, that the... Uh, conventional military balance, which has completely shifted against them with South Korea, is any longer a threat. That of course depends on saying that they really don't want to take over South Korea. And there are two schools of thought. There's those who say no, they really don't, because what they want is just to be left alone. And there's others who say that they really do. Uh, My former colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Nick Eberstadt, recently has written some long essays on this. Nick is one of the most perceptive writers and and, uh, observers of North Korea, he believes as many do, that they truly want to take over the entire Korean Peninsula, and that nuclear weapons gives them that opportunity, because the U.S. will not be willing to trade Los Angeles for Seoul, uh, or even Tokyo for Seoul, quite frankly, so that they'll be able to bluff their way into a uh, a takeover of the peninsula. So um, none of us know how having nuclear weapons will will change Kim Jong-un. It could make him more aggressive. Because he thinks I can do anything and no one's really gonna risk mm-hmm. uh, a nuclear war over little old me.
0: Should uh North Korea, Michael, want to express its decided displeasure with these new round of sanctions, what is the easiest thing for it to do? Cyber strike?
1: Uh you know the interesting thing about North Korea is that um for maximum effect they rarely do the same thing twice. Oh. Now now they do cyber. I mean look, cyber right. is now a a um a regular well tool of war, so to speak. But or, or are, you, are, pre-war. You saying, are you
0: saying that because they did cyber to Sony pictures, they won't do cyber to the US or
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, I, well, what I wanted to say is that cyber is now just a regular part of the toolkit. And okay. so I think they're doing it all the time and we know that they're they're doing it with their crashing systems and they're stealing right. money and the like. But don't forget, they want effect. Mm-hmm. They want effect. Right. They got effect with Sony. You're not gonna get the same effect with Paramount. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think the thing that I've been waiting for, and I'm I'm not the only one, but I've been waiting for a while for it, is um, an atmospheric nuclear test over the Pacific. If you've got the weapon and you've got the missile, then you should be able to do it. And it would also um, remove any ambiguity in the minds of anyone that north korea has this and can do it
0: right but that would then raise the question michael of what is a hanging offense for this regime
1: in other words what do they do that is the point of no return for us to have to attack them yeah i, I you know people say well that would cross the red line i don't think so i don't see so well obviously at obviously,
0: obviously launching something the united states is an war, sure. but something the question is what shy yeah. of launching a missile to the united states would actually compel us to
1: want to physically punish them well, so far the answer is nothing. Nothing, right? Right. right. I mean, they they sunk a, North, a South Korean ship and bombed right. South Korean territory, and we were the ones who restrained the South Koreans.
0: But I find it to be a very interesting question because you have to think of from the North Korean mindset about how they want to keep goading us and provoking us, figuring sure. that like a like a like a smaller kid, you know, pushing a bigger kid, guessing at all times I'll keep pushing you and pushing you, but you're not going to actually unload on me. So from yeah. the North Korean perspective, just what they think in their mind is too much.
1: Yeah, well, uh, uh, too much would clearly be crossing the border yep. into South Korea, right? Uh, launching an attack on South Korea, right? Um, but a nu- an atmospheric nuclear test—what are we going to do? Go to war over that? I, I don't know. I mean, look, Trump showed that he was willing to attack at least on a one-off Syria after the uh, mm-hmm. um, poison gas use of poison gas, and maybe this is something where he'd have a similar. Quick kinetic strike, but that does not solve the problem. No. It does not get rid of the weapons. It does not get rid of the missiles. It doesn't get rid of the leadership. So you can right. do it, and risk that it spins out, you know, spins out of control into something larger. Right. Uh, but so far, North Korea has figured out that as long as it stays on its side of the border, it, there's nothing it can really do that will cause a a kinetic response from the U.S. Now, has Trump introduced enough uncertainty? Mm-hmm. The bloody nose theory, you know, approach into North Korea, that they're not going to try anything like that. Right. Uh, I think you have to expect that North Korea does something because that's what they've always done. That's been the modus operandi, is to do something, and to do something for effect.
0: Mm-hmm. you up for a little more China talk. Yeah, sure. Okay. Getting back to the Olympics then, Xi Jinping did not go to the Olympics. This is curious for several reasons. A Chinese president not attending the uh, games in Pyongyang. First of all, he went to Sochi. Vladimir Putin asked him, and he went. Second, it's not a long flight, I think, from um, Beijing to, to Seoul. Imagine it's not that, that tough on him. But thirdly, Michael, Beijing is the host of the next Winter Games in 2022. So protocol sort of dictated. Now, I don't know what happened behind the scenes. I don't know if perhaps he was not invited, though I find that hard to believe. Maybe he doesn't, did not want to go and maybe sanction in some way or be seen as blessing the idea of a reunification on the Korean Peninsula. But he was not there. Meanwhile, though, he was doing something, something which a term-limited Jerry Brown in California as governor would support, something Barack Obama and Bill Clinton certainly would have supported, which would be the abolishment of the 22nd Amendment. He has done the same, Michael, and he has ended the idea of term limits for a Chinese president. Obviously, he wants to stay in power, but Michael, why would the Chinese officials, why would the Chinese power leaders want to go along with this? First of all, in terms of developing a cult of personality, but secondly, if we look at history and we look at nations right now, Show me a nation which has a political strongman and a healthy economy.
1: So uh, we have to go back a little bit in history. Right. The current system, all of China's current elite politics was set up after the death of Mao Zedong. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, to prevent another Mao from... Arising. Now, of course, Mao was unique and, you know, the, the father of the revolution, but also became a, an absolutely uncontrolled despot. Is, this is how the 22nd Amendment came in the U.S., because no more FDRs. No more FDRs. I mean, not obviously same scale of slaughtering 50 million of your countrymen. But <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, okay. but, but yes. Um, so number one, it was to prevent another Mao. And, right. and really not the Mao of 1949, the revolutionary hero, but the Mao of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural right. Revolution. Right. Second, it was to prevent what happened after Mao died, mm-hmm. which was a period of great internecine struggle of of elite power infighting uh, that threatened to rip apart the top levels of the party mm-hmm. uh, and which resulted in show trials um, and uh, was really something that the leadership felt was spinning out of control. So what you had were were a lot of different decisions, but two, I would say, two core ones at least, two core ones that we care about. One is that essentially you would have a collective leadership model from now on. Mm-hmm. No more great helmsman like Mao. No one else would be the, the, uh, the leader that was uncontrolled in any way. So you had a series of uh, you know picks uh, of leaders that were acceptable. Obviously, Deng Xiaoping took paramount control, but he's the one who installed this system, recognizing because he himself had been purged, recognizing what had happened with, with Mao and wanting to prevent that. So um, you, you had a series of leaders who uh, were first among equals, but among equals. Second, you had the two-term limit for the president right. and vice president, which uh, not only prevented the rise of another Mao, but also gave a very reassuring regularity mm-hmm. to a 10-year cycle at the midpoint of which you would basically anoint the next generation of, of top leaders. Right. This has not happened this time. At the 19th Party Congress last fall, Xi Jinping did not unveil the new clear leaders for the next generation. And the reason he didn't is because we just found out that the uh, Central Committee has proposed that this, uh, it's not formal yet, but mm-hmm. that this two-term limit be scrapped. Um, the question is why do it now? And the question is what does it mean? Right. I think he, he does it now for a couple of reasons. Perhaps above all to show that he can do it now. How old is he? Sixty-four years old, which okay. means he could be in power until twenty thirty mm-hmm. easily. Um, so he'd only be in his you know late seventies or early eighties, right? Um, so first of all, he can do it now. Uh, because he can, and he's showing everyone that he can. Mm-hmm. I mean, you asked why did the leadership go along yeah, with why? it? Because why? because that leadership is his leadership now. It's his people. It's his men. He has already moved so far down the road of removing collective leadership mm-hmm. as an effective check on sole power. Right. You have a a um, a one. You know, you have a single party. One party rule in China. Now we're moving back to one man rule in China. Mm-hmm. The other reason I think he does it now uh, is tactical which is by doing it now, he, uh, well, it's strategic in the sense of by doing it now, he ends any speculation over the next four years of whether he wants to stay on. And, and if he waited until towards the end of that term, maybe you would have more opposition because uh, people w- wouldn't be sure, and then he springs it on them. And so somehow, for some reason, there's opposition to it. The other reason is tactical, which I think is that by doing it now, you essentially neutralize any opposition to your policies over the next four years or four 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 and a half years. Remember, he's just started this second term of five right. years. Right. So if you think he's leaving in four and a half years, it's a long time, but you wait it out, right? Either for a leadership role or because you don't like the policy, you'll slow walk the policy, you'll oppose the policy, whatever it is. Well, now he's going to stay on forever. So you can't oppose him. I mean, if you oppose him, now you're you are in opposition, and that has a very different connotation in an authoritarian regime than it does in in a democratic regime so he's done it i think um to end speculation he's done it to show he has the power and he's done it to make sure that his plans uh, uh, which are very ambitious one belt one road um the made in china 2025 Mm -hmm. the uh, country with advanced socialist characteristics all of which he can push through before he finally is uh, forced uh, by nature to step down and again he's the new vladimir putin he could be around for another Fifteen years, even.
0: And how does he differ? Easily. From, and how does he differ from Putin? Does he have any similar? Ba- Putin's a KGB guy. At the end of the day, he's, yeah. a, he's a tough guy from St. Petersburg. And so we know from being a KGB that he doesn't suffer fools gladly.
1: But what about Xi? Uh, well, she is a princeling which in the Chinese context means he's the the child of a uh, a princeling so he's the f- the son of one of the highest ranking cadres under Mao Zedong, but his family was purged. he was purged he spent some time living in a cave he spent some time living out you know, in the in the far deep countryside um, uh, which which to some people indicates that they think he's really going to be a reformer right because he sort of harbors grudges against. Uh, one-man rule that, that mm-hmm. ruined his family. There's, there's absolutely no evidence. You know, The evidence is that he is a true, true believer in Chinese communism and communism with Chinese characteristics uh, and the like. Um, he's not an intelligence agent. He's not a military guy. Mm-hmm. But he has taken full control of all of the organs of state, essentially. Right. Uh, he has purged military leaders. His anti-corruption campaign purged uh, alternative centers of political... Opposition, uh, alternative centers of military opposition, alternative centers of of uh, media opposition, mm-hmm. uh, and he is an extraordinarily sophisticated uh, political infighter. Clearly, to to get to the position where he is, but there is at least I think Bill as much a chance that at least in retrospect, let's say down the line, we will see this not as an act of strength but as an act of weakness, that Xi Jinping worries that time is not on his side and not on China's side, that the macroeconomic picture is slowing and has slowed dramatically, that there is great dissent inside the country, which is why they've cracked down even more on open expression on the Internet, um, that uh, the, uh, the disastrous one-child policy is going to leave China with a labor shortage, uh, which it's already beginning to move into, and a shrinking population just as its population really starts aging as well. Uh, that it's a China that has, quite frankly, problems with all of its neighbors, mm-hmm. with Japan, with India, um, uh, maybe not so much with Russia, but there's always deep uh, deep distrust there, uh, that a uh, China that's distrusted by nations throughout the region because of what it's done in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Um, in many ways, I don't think this is a move of strength. I think it's a move of, quite frankly, concern. I wouldn't say fear, but concern right. that and these are his policies, most of them, that have really backed China, not one policy policies, not his policy, but these other policies, have backed China into corners that's hard to get out of. Right. Uh, and so we see it as, you know, he's so powerful, he's becoming the new Mao or a new emperor or whatever you want to call it. Um, but don't forget systems that are confident, that trust their people, that trust that they have the support of their people, that trust that they will continue to be able to go on uh, in a, uh, a way that's unfettered, do not take the types of actions that the Communist Party of China is taking.
0: If I put a world map in front of you, Michael, and I said point to where you'd like to travel for a vacation, what would you point to?
1: Wow, it's a, a, a great question. We're, we're getting there,
0: but I'm curious as to where you travel to, because I want to tell you what the world's leading tourist destination is these
1: days. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, well, I mean, I've been to a lot of the places, so it's, you know, where would I want to go to that's, that's new, and I would, I would probably say South Africa.
0: South Africa, okay. Have you been to Cambodia?
1: I have not. You have not. Cambodia is one of the places I did not get to in research for my last book. Okay. Where
0: would you go if you went to Cambodia?
1: Uh, Angkor Wat, I guess. Exactly.
0: Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. Angkor Wat, according to TripAdvisor, Michael, is the world's leading tourist destination. And that's in part because the Chinese are visiting it in droves. (laughs) But the Chinese are doing more than just visiting Cambodia, Michael. They are pouring billions of dollars into Cambodia in terms of
1: agriculture, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of health care.
0: Why would they care about Cambodia?
1: Well, first of all, Cambodia has always been one of the few real allies China's had. Uh, don't forget, it's a communist country, just right. like Vietnam and just like Laos. But it's, it's been a country right. that uh, China has uh, steadily won over to its side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laos has really been the, the sort of traditional uh, ally. And, and Vietnam has been a, you know, a socialist brother, but, but with a lot of tensions S- between of, them. Sort of a frenemy. A frenemy, I think yeah. that's a good way to put it. Uh, uh, but um, China has great stakes in the Mekong Valley mm-hmm. region. Uh, It has built massive amounts of infrastructure, as you indicate. It also politically uses its alliances or partnerships with both Laos and Cambodia to frustrate larger um, policies of the ASEAN grouping, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, Mm -hmm. ten Southeast Asian nations, uh, that have come together as sort of the main uh, regional uh, multilateral organization. And China has has an effective veto and check on what they do. Mm -hmm because Laos and Cambodia always, always support it. Uh, I think you have to look at what it's doing in Cambodia uh, and what it does throughout the region in in light of the larger and much more ambitious now One Belt, One Road policy, which is to link through infrastructure and trade and close political relations, all of Eurasia under Chinese auspices. Um, but it and it has not just an east-west connotation or orientation, which is the one we usually think about. It has a north-south one as well.
0: We did a podcast last week with uh, your Hoover colleague Deke Slayton, who runs our Arctic Security Council. There are eight nations,
1: Michael, that are around the Arctic Ocean.
0: China claims it's number nine.
1: Yes, they have a nuclear
0: power icebreaker, and they want to send ships up into the into the Arctic Ocean.
1: Well, they they want to send ships uh, through the Arctic Ocean uh, and the uh, the the trans uh, basically the the trans the right. Yeah, because it cuts three weeks off the mm-hmm. shipping time from Shanghai to Hamburg. Right, right to Germany. Uh, Germany is China's largest European trading partner. It's, uh, I, I forget the exact ranking now, but it's its probably in its top five trade partners. It might be number right. three right. after the US and Japan. Uh, and so it, it absolutely claims uh, that it has a, a stake in the Arctic and that it has, uh, as you said, nuclear powered icebreakers and that it should play a role. Now this to me is really what worries Vladimir Putin. This massive military buildup that Putin has promised for the Far East to rebuild Russia's Far East capability uh, was um, uh, uh, painted in terms of keeping down a rising Japan, you know, Shinzo Abe and his right. uh, modest rearmament of Japan. I don't think that has anything to do with I think it's China, because to transit into those waters, you have to go through Russian waters. You have to go right. through Russian territory, and, right. and, and Russia considers those its waters. You also have to get up into the Bering Strait, right? So that's Alaska, and that's the U.S. Right. So Russia's buildup, I think, is really all about China, quite, quite honestly, in <laughs> the long run. Don't forget, in the, uh, the uh, f- parts of Russian Siberia that are closest to uh, the Pacific Ocean and, and uh, the Arctic Circle, uh, you have about 12 million Russians max, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that's a number that's dropping. Uh, In the three provinces that border Russian-Siberia to the east, the the most eastward three Chinese provinces that border Mm Russian-Siberia, you have a hundred million Chinese. So the numbers right there tell you that the border is essentially fungible. It's a porous border. Mm -hmm. Siberia has what China doesn't have. It has timber, it has clean water, it has enormous amounts of minerals, it has oil and it has gas. Putin's no fool. He understands this, which is one reason why he has tried to play the role from a weak hand of being the co-equal but relatively reliable partner of China right. uh, in uh, international fora such as the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, or essentially being, the, you know, the part of um, uh, of the BRICS or whatever it is that opposes the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, and and show China that he's a he's a worthy partner. But I don't think anyone who knows. Russian-Chinese history should delude themselves, that the two have an actual alliance. They may have a marriage of convenience today because they're both uh, resurgent or revanchist or rising authoritarian powers, but they will turn on each other as soon as they dispatch the United States from their region.
0: Final question, Michael, and I appreciate your time getting back to our idea of badminton and the shuttlecock and what goes over the net is going to eventually get returned over the net. China does one built China puts $60 billion into Pakistan, under the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. It's in Cambodia. It's expanding wherever it can and looking for new opportunities to expand. This forces the United States, Japan, India, Australia, these nations which are around the area, mm-hmm. to talk to each other about how to correspond, about how to react to this. So what are the options? Are we talking infrastructure initiatives? Are we talking security initiatives? Are we talking economic initiatives? How do you see the, the Western countries reacting to this. Well,
1: it should be all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, don't forget, you know, we, we, we talk about this in such binary terms, um, and, and I'm not a trade specialist, so I, right. like most Americans or most people, I don't really understand the intricacies of trade and mm-hmm. uh, the in- intricacies of uh, either uh, finance or, or um, uh, you know, uh, supply chains and the like. Um, but one of the reasons China is doing all of this, of course, is to take advantage of uh, a wealthy West, as it's been doing over the past, you know, generation, uh, and and figure out ways to, to get an even bigger share of the pie, but that pie really grows as we grow. Right. Right? It's it's not that, you know, it doesn't work. I mean, it works to some level, but it doesn't work if America and Europe fold up shop and collapse. So this is really, in some ways, about China trying to figure out how it gets a bigger slice of the pie. Uh, and, yes, it is neo mercantilist, and mm-hmm. it... Uh, it does not uh, act in ways that often grow trade, but it still is dependent on the international trading system we've developed. And I, you know, One Belt, One Road is is not a trading system that can supplant the global open consumer-oriented trading architecture. It can have a significant impact and, and in lots of different ways, but it's not that you could say, well, what China's going to do is link Eurasia together, uh, you know, much of which is incredibly poor, by the way. Right. And it doesn't have huge consumer... Um, middle classes. And suddenly that's going to mean, it. well, it doesn't need America or Europe anymore. That, that's not the case at all. What it wants to be is a bigger player. Right. But it has to do that within the context of what we've built. And so, yes, we still have options. And those options are things that you said. We should have not pulled out of the tra- uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. We mm-hmm. should be promoting other types of um, gold standard, liberal-oriented trade pacts. Um, we should be doing more with security. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, do, we do a fair amount, but we should be doing more. I think we should be promoting civil society, promoting democracy, obviously not at the point of a gun, but talking to those countries that uh, are, are struggling with it or are interested in it. This is something our Hoover colleague Larry Diamond works extensively on, which is the democratic recession, as he right. calls it. Um, these are areas where we should be very forthright in talking about the benefits of our system. Now one thing you'll notice about China, and this is maybe a good place to uh, to wind up, we're, you know, we all fear what China is becoming, even as we understand there are opportunities. But to be honest, there's no country that wants to become like China. Right? Everyone wants to make money off of China. Right. They want China to buy their goods or buy their raw materials or give them money, which often turns into resentment for, uh, for infrastructure. Right. People want to live free also. People want to live free. There's no one that says, gosh, I love the idea of Xi Jinping being president for life, and I'd like that here, right? Right. Uh, no one says that what I, you know, certainly if you're a democracy is saying what I want right. is a Chinese Communist Party-style system. Right. I want Internet uh, I want somebody censorship. controlling my
0: Internet. I want somebody planning my exactly. family. I want, I want all of us. Exactly right.
1: So, you know, uh, we often overstate China's strength in terms of its attractiveness, its ability to sway. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, it always takes two steps forward and one step back, right? It, right. It'll it give a lot of aid, but countries don't like that aid mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Uh, because it comes with enormous strings attached and expectations. Uh, they don't really like Chinese infrastructure building because the Chinese come in with Chinese labor and they set up Chinese towns and Chinese stores and they despoil the uh, environment and no one gets a benefit from it. And quite frankly, they build crappy stuff and the road falls apart in five years, but the Chinese have gotten in and gotten what they wanted. Right. Uh, so there, there's a real limitation to China's um attractiveness and what Xi Jinping has done is promised an enormous amount Mm -hmm. and if he doesn't deliver there's going to be a lot of questioning about just what China's real strengths are he's promised a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending around Eurasia over the next whatever it is 10 years or whatever his time frame is they got to deliver on that and I don't think they can deliver on it they can deliver on some of it but they can't deliver on all of it and so we shouldn't you know we shouldn't you know cower in a corner Mm -hmm. over China Uh, It's big, it's important, it's got a major military. It's got a military that does wanna push the United States out of Asia, which it can't do yet, but it's Mm -hmm. getting closer to. It is getting better than us uh, at a lot of things. It's uh, uh, at possible close to parity on cybersecurity. Um, uh, Some tech leaders like Eric Schmidt believe that it's just a short matter of time before it's leading us in AI and artificial intelligence, that it's writing the code for the computers and not just making the hardware. Mm -hmm. We have real challenges. But China also has real weaknesses and real real problems. We should be thinking uh, both objectively about what those are and also opportunistically about how you take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we still have a much more attractive system, even with all of our problems and uh, concerns about President Trump and concerns about democracy. No one's saying, you know what, the Americans were crazy to elect Trump. Let's go, let's go get Xi Jinping as a, as a dictator. No one's saying that.
0: Let's make this our getting off point, Michael. Yeah. Um, help our listeners see the world through your eyes and tell them where you go for information. Besides obviously going to your Twitter feed to see what you're writing about, give them a couple of websites you think that are really good, a couple of blogs perhaps, or a couple of authors you think really have their finger on the pulse of Asia.
1: You know, um, I, I, I appreciate the question because I want to ask that to you and, and others. I, I find it increasingly difficult to, to manage the flow of information No, it's that's the irony of the
0: age we live in. It's sort of like drinking out of a fire hydrant.
1: I think one, one thing that's evolved, and I'm not sure anybody really could have predicted it, uh, is the importance of the aggregators. Mm-hmm. You know, so you get a, a, a basically a very wide angle view of all the stuff that's coming out that day. You know, we're talking right. real clear politics, real clear world, real exactly. clear defense. Uh, in my case, what I do, foreign policy has a good one. Defense news has a good one. The early bird brief. These are things that, mm-hmm. that I look at. Um, but, but it is important to look at, I think, longer form journalism uh... there is uh... there's just you know whether you agree with it or not there's you know there are thoughtful pieces uh... in the atlantic there mm-hmm. are thoughtful pieces in the new journal american affairs right. uh... there are thoughtful pieces uh, i i find some of the british writing they they tend to write longer pieces than we do if you look at the new statesman mm-hmm. um, the new york review of books you know a lot of stuff that i disagree with but they they take a lot of space to sort of lay out arguments and at right. least it allows you to do that um, and Claremont Review of Books. I mean, again, you don't have to agree. I certainly disagree with a lot of these. But I think if you can get away from what's the headline today and look at some of the broader thought pieces, those are helpful in coming back to the rush of events.
0: Okay, Michael Olson, thanks for the conversation. May you live long and prosper, or at least as long as Xi Jinping is in power. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the Policy Avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Michael Oslin and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Michael Oslin is also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Michael Oslin, and that is at Michael, A-U-S-L-I-N, at Michael Oslin. Anything else I need to plug for you?
1: I think you've done a great job.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, my friend. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.